I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing on in our um, series on the Sermon, in the Ma- Sermon on the Mount. We already looked at the first 16 verses there and uh, looked really at the Beatitudes and, and we kind of discussed just how just abnormal that kind of behavior, those kind of qualities, those kind of characteristics are to the rest of the world, uh, and yet how normal it should seem to those a part of the kingdom. They're kingdom characteristics. They're qualities and characteristics that describe who uh, are supposed to be God's people his, in, in his kingdom, uh, who are Christians, disciples of Jesus. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be, um, begin this morning by just continuing on down uh, the verses there. We're not going to be able to read uh, verses 17 through the rest of the chapter, through verse 48, though I, I do hope to at least touch most of the, chap- uh, the rest of the chapter as we go through it. Um, before we do that, though, I'm, I, you may see that there's a lot more people than just me and Paige here uh, that we brought with us uh, this morning. Uh, her family came down and helped us there. They have been helping us quite a bit, um, just fixing up the house and just doing things that I'm pretty sure I would be lost doing or uh, probably cause more damage if I tried to do it by myself. So it was really good to have them with us. Got a lot done uh, this weekend. Just really appreciate them being with us. And I encourage you to uh, say hello uh, before they leave. I believe they're leaving this afternoon. So um, as I said, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures. And specifically because... What you find is, is Jesus kind of doing something that, that seems a tad bit strange to us. He quotes, really, the Old Testament. He quotes the law of Moses. And he uses this as a basis uh, for his teaching. He uses this to actually say how he wants people to continue to act. A lot of the time when we talk about the old law, the law of Moses, it tends to be in the mindset of, okay, well, that's done, that's dead. And yes, it is dead. Uh, but I think we do that just so maybe too quickly and maybe with um, maybe too much of an emphasis on, I don't think this is on purpose, but, but this just tends to happen by accident, too much of an emphasis on, well, maybe there's just no value in it anymore. That's certainly not the case. There's much value in the Old Testament. That's why it's been revealed to us. Um, and so I want to try and see some of that value th- this, this morning as we go throughout the rest of this chapter. So... Uh, In verse 17, we're just going to look at three main points predominantly this morning, and that is going to be the the fact that, especially at the time in the first century, the Jews, God's people, they seem to have a great misunderstanding of the law. And so Jesus really kind of contends with that misunderstanding. And then the second main point is going to be that he uses the law, as we just mentioned a moment ago, to uh, give some more teaching about how he wants his people to continue to act And then we'll end with what the purpose of the law has always been. So the very first thing I want to talk about is, again, that misunderstanding of the law. In verse 17, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, Again, Jesus makes clear, I think, with this statement that the law was good. Just kind of adding on to what I've said already, I think a lot of the time when people, even Christians, 
come to the old law, you know, you get to Leviticus. Oh, just such a riveting uh, portion of the Bible to read. You know, it really, it really gets us excited. You know, it, it, it's kind of hard for us to just read through that uh, in, our, in our annual Bible reading or in our uh, yearly Bible reading. And so, you know, things like Leviticus, Deuteronomy kind of gets a little bit maybe intimidating. It's just difficult. And sometimes it seems kind of dry. And so when we talk about the law, we, I think, again, just far too quickly, a lot of people just end up saying, concluding the matter by saying, well, I'm just glad I'm not a Jew <laughs> because that would be weird. I'm glad I'm not a Jew because, you know, now I get to eat more things. And now I get to, you know, uh, and, and I, I kind of understand that reasoning because I'm a big eater. If, if you've had the, I don't know if it's a misfortune to eat with me, you can see I'm a very big eater. I like, I, I just, I enjoy that. But obviously that's not the main purpose of, of uh, or that, that shouldn't be the main takeaway from, you know, discussing the old law. Just glad it's done. I'm glad that we don't have to go by those rules. I'm glad that we don't have to go by that standard anymore because that would have been pretty difficult. And in a lot of cases, it probably would have been difficult. But I think when people say that, they don't realize that what that means is the law that we are under today, the law of Christ, the standard that we are under today, in fact, I think really in application, it's even more difficult. Because as we're going to talk about more throughout this chapter, he's not just requiring uh, just, just very basic laws that only, only reach the surface but never go, goes deeper. And so, if, uh, so at the very beginning of this, Jesus makes clear that, he, that uh, the law was not bad. The law of Moses was not a bad law. Uh, what we're going to find is it just means that while that was a good law, what has come is that much more glorious. So he's not doing away with the obligation to God's commands. As you read throughout this Sermon on the Mount, you, you often hear a lot of times, well, you've heard it say, but I say to you. He's not doing away with those things, but continuing on in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, he's not doing away with the responsibility that, we, that, that, the, that the Jews had to the law or, or rather their obligation to, to God's commandments. He's amplifying the responsibility to them. He's, he's only emphasizing more so these were important. And they weren't just important as a checklist. They weren't just important so that you could say, okay, I've done this today, or maybe I haven't done this today. It was so much more than that. It was so much deeper than that. And uh, he uses the law, as we've already said, as that basis to make even more uh, comments about how he wants us to live. Over in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 12, um, you find the same thing that we've already read in verse 17 where he says, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Over in Matthew 7 and verse 12, you remember this verse. It says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Why? For this is the law and the prophets. So again, does it seem like Jesus is just saying, forget all that. You just, don't worry about that. That was, that was a bunch of silliness. You don't really have to, you don't have to try and you know, bother yourself with trying to, to keep those things anymore. No, what he's saying is those were teaching eternal truths. And those eternal truths are still important today. Um, and, and, and so bringing some of that teaching uh, combines it into New Testament teaching. And so Jesus, I, I, as, as we go throughout this sermon, I, I just want to emphasize the point that as he is correcting much teaching when it comes to God's law, he's not correcting um, 
he's not correcting errors that were found in the law of Moses. He's correcting the erroneous applications, or maybe the lack thereof, of God's law and the law of Moses. Again, we already, we already made the point. The law was good. God is the one that gave it, so it was very good. The problem was that the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they come in and really they corrupt it. They, they add in lots of traditions, and they, in some cases, make those traditions more important than God's law. But, but ultimately, they weren't really following it. And I think you see this a lot, not just in, in uh, what we're going to find in Matthew chapter 5, but throughout the epistles in the New Testament. Romans, I think, is a very good case of this. Paul is just really going back through their history. And he's going back through the law of Moses, and he says, okay, but do you not, do you not see... What the, real, what the main point here was. And do you not see that you have failed more so because you didn't see it? Because you were given the law. Um, and so he wasn't, Jesus' problem was by no means with God's law. He was God. But rather the, the erroneous applications, the corruption that had come to it by, by man. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5 he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so a lot of the time you're going to see that he is quoting the law in some cases. It, you know, when you get to like verse 43, I think that you actually get to one of those very clear corruptions because a part of that is a quotation from the law. But then the end of it in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, one of those we can easily quote from the law of Moses, but but not that last part. That was an addition by man. That was maybe a, a, a corruption or a twisting by man when it comes to God's law. And so whenever he says, you've heard it said, he is never indicating this is, this is completely new stuff. You've never been able to see this before. You've heard it said, but forget all of that. That was garbage. <laughs> no. He's saying, you've heard bad teachers say these kinds of things, and I'm telling you what you really need to apply to it, what God has always been saying. You need to apply to it. So let's just look at a few of those examples as we get to this uh, next main point. Beginning in verse 21, um, in verses 21 through 48, that's where he begins to start going through all of these laws and commandments. <clears throat> as Jesus appeals to uh, the commandments to make his case, throughout he reveals that they should have, I think, understood what God was calling for all along. He, I think he reveals that they just had hard, stubborn hearts. You didn't want to see how far this was supposed to go. You, Pharisee, you, scribe and chief priest and the rest that would follow them, you did not want to let it go deeper than the surface. And because of that, you've made a mockery of the law. You've made a mockery of God, and you haven't brought glory to him. Um, so, so some of these, uh, as he's quoting them, I think uh, one thing that we can take just from the outset is just merely quoting Scripture does not mean that you are honestly applying it or even honestly citing it. Um, and I think we see that in Matthew chapter 4. We don't have enough time to go there. But uh, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, the devil, he really he verbatim quotes scripture. And yet, he's not applying it correctly. Uh, and, and actually, he's quoting it in a deceptive manner. And so from the outset, you can see, I think, very clearly that just because someone maybe uses scripture to try and justify something they do, you know, rubber stamping what they're doing, that, that doesn't count. Uh, and, and so, obviously, that's an application that we can take from this. But beyond that, in verse 21, here is where I think he really begins to start uh, uh, hitting some of the, the corruptions of the Pharisees. In verse 21, it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
Now that term liable to the court, I think is very indicative of what uh, really a lot of the Jews had done at that, up to that point in the first century. It seems to indicate one of the loopholes that they'd created and probably one of the loopholes that the Pharisees specifically had created. These experts of the law. You know what this looks like. Okay, well, it says not to murder, but there's a lot of things that we can do other than murder. Hey, have you followed the law? He's still alive, isn't he? (laughs) I hate the guy, and I even decked him in the face, and I gave him a black eye, and I've said all kinds of things about him, and everyone believes me. But hey, I didn't murder him. The The law's been kept, right? No. God was obviously teaching a little bit more than just simply do not murder. And I think you see that just with how lengthy Leviticus and Deuteronomy is or are. Because it go, he adds on to those ten commandments that he gives. But, so obviously, that, that doesn't mean that you've actually kept the law. But that's what they would treat it as. They said, okay, fine. Well, guess what? You're not liable to the court. Who are we supposed to be liable to? They focused so much on man's court. They did not think about the judge. They did not think about God's court. And so they tended to treat, uh, 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 what I think you see just in the beginning here, they tended to treat God's law really not as a divine, not coming from divine origins, but from a man-made origin. Hey, we can treat, treat this just like we treat everything else. You know, when tax season comes, I never do anything illegal, but I will try to find every way possible to not give one cent that is not, that is not required to the government. I, I just, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of petty like that. I, I make sure, and, and I even set it on what, you know, maybe this is probably stupid, but I even set it for 11.59 p.m. to actually, you know, transfer the funds over so that way they don't get it until the very last possible moment. That's probably going to bite me <laughs> sometime in the future. But, I mean, you know, we, but when you, you look at something like that and we tend to be very petty like that. And we try to get by just, just squeezing through with as you know, minimum, with little as possible. But with God's law, it's not supposed to be that way. What he says over and over again is, here is something that I want you to follow. Here is something that I want you to do. Or here's something that I want you to stay away from. And don't just treat it like a chore. Okay, it's done. Now I can actually go and do what I want to do. No. You need to realize that there is some, there's a reason to appreciate it. There is a reason that David could say, as we already talked about in Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Uh, You know, he begins by saying, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, and sit in the seat of scoffers, but what? But delights in the law of the Lord. That, David, was a very good example of that. That's the pattern you want to follow. Not someone who just treats it like a chore, but says there is good in it. There's a reason that God gave me this, and that's why I'm going to follow it. And I'm going to try and, uh, you know, uh, grow in that appreciation. And I'm going to try and see just all the reasons why, why I need to appreciate it. But even in just the fact that he gives it to me, I'm going to appreciate it because he gives it to me for my good. But the Pharisees obviously did not treat it that way. They thought, okay, well, forget being liable to God. What does man say? Hey, you're innocent until proven guilty particularly in our country, and that's, that, I think that's a pretty good standard because we're humans and we, we're, we're, we're very fallible. <laughs> and so we kind of need some of that leeway to make sure that people aren't you know, just thrown into prison for nothing. So we're innocent until proven guilty. But in a lot of cases, justice isn't done. Because you have someone over here, and this man is sketchy, he's shady. You know, he, he really, there, there are some issues here. 
And, 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 and here he is in the court, you know, obviously an evil, wicked man, but he just can't be proven. He can't be convicted because there's a lack of evidence maybe. Because again, man has a hard time. We're fallible. And we can't just get every, all the evidence that we want when we want it. However, God is not limited to the restrictions of man. He's the one that created. He's the creator. And he's, and he's not restricted by maybe our limitations. Rather, he knows all, he sees all, and he knows even what we're thinking. And so when he says, do not murder, that goes beyond just a simple check. Over, down in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. <laughs> so there is a deep, deep application that they were supposed to make, but they simply did not want to make it. It's not just don't murder. It's don't get to that point. Don't allow yourself to even take the first steps. And what are the, what are the first steps? Anger. Senseless anger. Worldly anger. Hatred. Bitterness. And what happens? It grows, it grows, and it grows, and it festers, and then ultimately we act on it. What he's saying is don't even toy with that. It's kind of like what we were talking about on Wednesday in Psalm 1. You don't even toy with the counsel of the wicked. Stay away from that. Why, why do you even want a taste of what they're trying to offer? The reason is because you're curious and you want to bite. But God says don't do that. Don't do that. And so... It, it, it wasn't about being liable before God, but just merely what the court could prove. And I think that was one of the main uh, corruptions of the Pharisees as it comes to uh, God's law. They treated it not as, as a divine law, but rather as a man-made law. And perhaps, perhaps you know, there was a misconception that if man thinks good of us, well, then that means God will too. And I think that that actually is still kind of applicable today. A lot of times we will engage in something and, and continually engage in something thinking, well, hey, you know, this is done in the dark. This is done in the shadows. Nobody knows about this. You know, maybe we can put on a very uh, realistic facade, but a facade it remains. No matter how real, no matter how sincere we may look, Man will be tricked. That, that's just the case. You're not, always going to, you're not always going to have justice. You're not always going to have the secrets of, revealed on earth. But when you come before God and we have to give an account, that's when the bill comes due. And you no longer get to say, but look at how everyone looked at me. No. How was I looking at you? You have not been my servant. You are a son of disobedience. And so depart from me. I never knew you. <laughs> but all these people knew me as good. I didn't. So you got to be careful about that and be careful about that misconception. Well, beyond that, uh, not only did they uh, treat it not as a divine law, but they, I think, restricted God's law to mean anything but what was actually intended by God. Over in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, and we're kind of skipping around, I know, but we don't have enough time to go through every single verse. But in verse 27, he says, you have heard it said uh, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so again, kind of coming back to what we were saying, it's, it's, just, it's even in the first steps that can be sinful, that, that, that causes us to sin. Now, I, I, I really think that all throughout as we look at this, you see very relatable arguments, very relatable mindsets that people, religious people, even many Christians still have today. 
or, or uh, ho hopefully not many Christians, but sometimes. And so look at how the Pharisees would take God's clear law about this. Okay, you, don't, you, just, you can't commit adultery, but there's a, there's a world of other things that you could do that fall under sexual activity. That's not adultery. <laughs> now you could, you could just fill in the blank. There's all kinds of things. Do you think that God wants us to engage in those things? No. Uh, and so a lot of the time, I think it just comes down to common sense. I know that, <laughs> I, I know that um, more and more it seems like common sense is kind of a tall order for, for a lot of people. But I think it just comes down to just being honest. Being honest and sincere when you come to the, God's commandments and saying, okay, what does this really mean? And it certainly means more than just don't commit adultery. You, you know, hey, we can go right up to the line. Can we, though? I, I, I think that was one of the first sermons I ever preached here, was the, was the boundaries of God and how God does not just say, guess what? Here's the line. You can get as close to it as you want. No. Rather, what you find is from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the wisdom of God in, in, in Proverbs and the Psalms, all the way to the teachings of Jesus, he makes clear over and over again, don't get near it. And he doesn't have to give these exhaustive lists of all these things. We read through the, the, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. You know, that's right next to the fruit, fruit of the Spirit. But all of those things, he says, and things like these. He doesn't give an exhaustive list because I think we can understand, you know, this comes from the world and this comes from God. How do you know? You, get, you go to the commandments. You go to his will. That's how we know. Shocker. Mind blown. And yet, you know, I, I'm being sarcastic, but how many people act like, watch, can we really know? I mean, how far can we go? What are you talking about? That's insane. That's insane. And the Pharisees acted like that and corrupted it in that way, I believe, time and time again. And today you still see, particularly when it comes to this uh, idea that we just read in verses 27 through 28, you still hear people asking, okay, how far can we go? Do you realize how close of, an, uh, of a question of, of that kind of maybe vain babbling, how close that sounds to what the Pharisees were talking about, how they talked in the first century? Well, you know, sure, sexual morality is bad. Sexual morality is a sin. But there's a whole lot of other things that we could do, right? Wrong. Wrong. We can't go get as close to those boundaries as possible. We are trying to flee, flee, resist Satan and draw as close to God as we can. And it doesn't seem like we're drawing nearer to him when we're getting as close to that commandment as possible. You're towing the line. It's never a good idea. Um, and so we need to be careful that we don't, that, that, that we like the Pharisees, that we don't do like the Pharisees and restrict God's law from meaning fully what it was supposed to mean. And ultimately, all of this just goes to say they didn't allow God's law to go deeper than the surface. They, they only allowed it to hit right at, the, right at the skin, right at the flesh, but never the heart. Never the mind. It never changed any mindset whatsoever. It was just change in action. Now, there's a lot to say about the need for action and the need for appropriate action, especially when it comes to what God calls for us to do. But the mindset, that is a great part of it. And the mindset can nullify, can make void those good deeds, those good works that we're a part of. Now, we all understand that. I, I like... Um, Brother, um, Brother Paul Earnhardt wrote a, wrote a commentary called, uh, I think it was a spiritual revolution, or an invitation to a spiritual revolution. And it was a commentary specifically on the Sermon on the Mount. And I like one of the things he said about this. He said, the ethical principles of the Old Testament were not superficial ordinances which govern muscle, 
but not mind. That's the way the Jews looked at it. They said, okay, fine. I guess I can't work on the Sabbath. I guess that I can't, you know, uh, I guess I can't, you know, forsake the, con- the, the congregation of, or the assembly of Israel on this day. And I need to make sure that I do these sacrifices, do these offerings. But you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait until the next day so that I can actually get work, so I can start profiting once more. That's what it, all throughout the prophets, you see that over and over again. And specifically with the Sabbath, it's, it's interesting that there is uh, a lot of remarks on the Sabbath in that way. But was that the right, I mean, d- does that mean that they were doing the right thing? Does that mean that they were actually following God's commandments? Hey, you need to rest on the Sabbath. Fine, but I'm not going to enjoy it. <laughs> how, parents, how do you feel when, you're, when your children say that? Uh, how, how would you feel when you tell them to do something and they say, fine, whatever. But guess what? I still don't like you. Do you think that that's obedience? Do you think that's respect? Certainly not. Again, it's absurd to act like that would actually mean anything. That obedience doesn't actually, that, 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 that obedience doesn't actually uh, uh, you know, feel loving or respectful. In the same way, God wants us to have that appreciation, that deep reverence for him when we are obeying him. It's not just a mere, uh, a mere facade in our actions, but both in actions and in mind, a sincere heart for obedience. Uh, a few, I, I, and honestly, I think ultimately you see this just in looking at some of the uh, Old Testament passages over in Leviticus chapter 19 very quickly. Leviticus chapter 19. <clears throat> You know, maybe, maybe someone could listen to some of the things that Jesus was saying. Oh, how could we have ever known this? Well, we have the Ten Commandments, but uh, come on. You really think that we were supposed to take it? How could we have known? Honestly, God was pretty clear anyway, besides the Ten Commandments. So you talk about murder or hatred in your heart. Okay, we definitely know that we can't murder, but what, that's hatred stuff. What are you talking about? Over in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17, he says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. I don't know, but even it's using the exact same wording. Hatred in your heart and incurring sin because of that hatred. I mean, what else is Jesus talking about but just more of the revelation of God's word? Another example, over in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Again, this is actually a part of the Ten Commandments, as, as Moses is uh, recounting uh, the, the Ten Commandments being given to the people before they're going to go into the Promised Land. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, Jesus was talking about in verses 27 and 28 of Matthew chapter 5, the, 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 uh, the, the law to not commit adultery. Well, we understand that. But then he goes further and he says, but guess what? You can't lust after a woman either. You can't Lust after her in your heart because guess what? That's sin as well. Well, how are we supposed to know that? Coming back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now that verse, that, that commandment doesn't just talk about coveting a wife or coveting uh, a, a woman or, or someone else. It talks about coveting several things. Now, I think this just proves the point even more. This wasn't specifically talking about what Jesus is in Matthew chapter 5, adultery. It's talking about a lot of things. But the root cause is don't covet. Don't desire. Don't have this worldly, wicked desire. 
I think they could have applied that very easily over here in this area of, okay, but we can still think whatever we want. We can do whatever we want besides adultery. No, you can't. Because God made it pretty clear. Don't covet. What does that mean? It means don't covet. Don't, envy, don't, try, don't fantasize about having something that's not yours in, in the first place, that is not appropriate for you to have in the first place. Does it, oh, but God's not been clear. I, I mean, we can't understand the old law. I, when we say that, I mean, come on. That seems a little bit silly. More than a little bit. The Pharisees had to give more than just their word uh, for surety. Back over in Matthew chapter 5, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially growing up, me and my siblings, we'd have to say, I promise. Uh, Because I had four siblings, and and if you would know this, if you have siblings, sometimes you like to maybe not treat each other the best, and, you know, you have to really stress things to make sure that they do exactly what you're asking them to do. And when you communicate, you have to get things across precisely. And so a lot of the time, you know, we say, oh, sure, I'll do that. But then we wouldn't do it. But do you promise? (sighs) Okay, I promise. And then what does that mean? It's binding. You can't break that because if you break, you've broken your word. You've broken your promise, your oath. You made a verbal vow. I think that that kind of childish behavior is the same way the Pharisees acted. Hey, I promise but not even their word was enough. Over in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 33, beginning, he says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, I'm not saying if we ever say, I promise, that that's, you know, just automatically sinful. But I do think that if ever uh, people have to feel like they need to really, you know, drag some kind of assurance out of us, I don't think we're living the way Jesus expects us to. He says, your word should be enough. And you shouldn't have to take someone's cloak. You shouldn't have to take someone's tunic. You shouldn't have to take someone's car keys just to make sure that they're going to fulfill the word, their word that they gave to you. Christians are supposed to be truly honest people. Now, what does that mean? Well, guess what? That is pervasive in application. It hits a whole lot of areas in life. And you don't just get to say, oh, it just means, you know, as long as I stress this one thing, well, then I've actually fulfilled my work. No, it means are you actually doing what you promise you will? Maybe not just in word, but in the relationships you take on. And obviously you can think uh, uh, just the example of marriage. What promises are you making just in fulfilling, beginning that relationship. You're making a lot. So he's calling for truly honest people. And the list could go on and on. You know, Jesus talks about their their hardened hearts when it came to divorce. They kind of indulged themselves in apathetic divorces. But God's people understand, the true servants of God, they understand he hates divorce and that marriage is something sacred, that it means something. You see that verses 31 through 32 when Jesus talks about that. You could go to several passages to make the case. God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. And that it's been sacred from since the beginning. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8. And so all of this just to say, I, I went through several examples. And I, and I didn't mean to spend as long as I did on those. But I went through all of those just to ask the question. Does it sound like God is doing away with the holy character described in the old law? And be careful. Yes, the old law is dead. 
We all understand that. But is he saying that there's nothing that you're supposed to take from that and apply it into your life in Christ? No. There's a whole lot that we're supposed to take into that. So that holy character, that holy, uh, that the holy mindset that we're supposed to have, the one who delights in the law of the Lord, that's the person who is blessed even still today. And so we have to be careful that we don't try to do away with the, 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 uh, all of the valuable lessons that were in the old law that Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what are we supposed to be doing? Mimicking him, imitating him. And so, uh, obviously, I think that we need to think a little bit more about the, the, the law of Moses' purpose in our lives and just how important it actually is. It's, it's describing, ultimately, Jesus. You want to know the purpose of the law, and this is the final point. We're not going to spend too much time on it because we've already made the case, I, I hope, with all those examples. What is the purpose of the law? To be like God. Over in Matthew 5, uh, in verse 48, the very end of the chapter, he says all of this ultimately because therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, that's a really hard commandment to follow. That's a hard commandment to strive for, to, to, to fulfill. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is still the objective of God's kingdom today. Over in chapter 6 and verse 33, as he's talking about how these people, a part of his kingdom, are supposed to act. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's, it's a continual process. It's a continual commandment. You need to strive to be more like him. Look more like him. And so... All that just to say, you're not going to look more like him. You can't become more like him if you don't first know his law. Over in 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> you know, in Matthew 5 and verses 43 through 45, Jesus gives a very hard commandment yet, yet again, talking about the need to love, pray for those who persecute you and your enemy. That is not something that the Pharisees would have taught. Hey, when we talk about the Romans, we're only going to talk about them in, in the case of we're going to have a, a David-like king come in and they're going to slaughter the Romans. That's how they wanted to talk about them. But Jesus comes in and says, hey, that, that's not exactly what I'm calling for. That is not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for is you need to pray for them. And that same person that can actually force you to go a mile carrying their load that's not really supposed to be your responsibility and the one that slaps you across the face, guess what? You pray for them continually and you love them rather than hating them and becoming bitter. Think about the love that is called for just in that. Are you going to find the motivation? Are you going to find the means to have that kind of love from any mindset of the world? I don't think you're going to be able to. Rather... The only, the only way this, this kind of love can be cultivated is through holy seed. Over in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 16, he said, I'm in John chapter 4. I was, I was looking down at that verse thinking, I have no idea what the Samaritans have to do with 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 uh, beginning in verse 16, it says, We have come to know and have believed that the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Going down to verse 19, why do we love? We love because he first loved us. That's why. Are you going to be able to cultivate the love that Jesus calls for by looking at all of the things that the world calls love? I don't think so, because it tends to be pretty fickle, and it tends to be pretty fragile, and with the slightest just the slightest insult, it breaks. 
It's shattered and it's irreparable. But the love that God calls for, well, no, that's a love that actually endures. That's a love that can actually take even the faults of, of unjust accusations, unjust actions. The only way that that's possible, the only way that we can achieve this kind of love is if we come to his will and, and try to understand it, and not in the same way that the Pharisees did, but really truly applying it, allowing it to get deeper than just the surface. And so today, God's law, his word, is still meant to penetrate the heart and change the mindset. I like what one person said about this when it talks about, you know, people talk about, well, I follow the spirit of the law. <laughs> it, all, it, just, it tickles me every time somebody says that because it's like, okay, how do you know the spirit of the law without knowing the letter of the law? It's crazy to think that, okay, but you know what? I know exactly what God wants. How so? Do you know the mind of God? I don't. I have to come to, to, to the Holy Spirit. I have to come to his word to know. So you cannot follow the spirit of the law without the letter of the law. It's just impossible. It's, you can't have it. Uh, again, another quote from Brother Earnhardt's uh, commentary on this. As he talks about this law, the, the Old Testament, the differences between the Old Testament and the New Covenant. He says the great difference between the law and the gospel is not to be found in their respective commands, but in the sacrificial death of the Son of God. How can we find the motivation to apply all of these things? Look to the sacrifice of Jesus. David, he was, he was able to do that not with the full revelation of what this Messiah was going to look like, of what his Lord was going to look like. He did it knowing, at the very least, I know God is going to provide that sacrifice. I know God is going to provide that atonement. We have the full revelation of God. And we've seen what that love stems from. With the full revelation, how can we not, how can we not accept that invitation? And how can we not truly, sincerely try to apply those things into our own lives? This covenant is better because we have the sacrifice of Christ. The main question is this morning, do you have that sacrifice? Have you added yourself to the king? Or rather, have you accepted Jesus' invitation to allow him to add you into his kingdom? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Are you willing to repent of all the things that he tells you not to be a part of, not to do, not to say, not to think? Change the mindset. And confess that he is the son of the living God and that you will be with him till the day of your death and be baptized into his death to have newness of life in him. Are you ready to make that commitment? If you are, let us help you and come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.